One of the blessings in disguise in this unprecedented global pandemic is that we feel reality of a death much closer than before. Although we know that we all die someday, we didn't realize that someday could be any day now for anyone, any of us. Without a mask, death can kiss any one of us without failure. As every day we hear the news about the record number of COVID-19 deaths, we cannot help but think about our own death. Speaking of death, I googled to see what people put on their tombstones, and I found some interesting ones. So I want to share some. So first one is that I told you I was sick. So, you know, I guess uh, people didn't see him, didn't take him sickness seriously. Second one, this is a Murph Griffin. You know, he is a creator of a Jeopardy, the producer of a Jeopardy. He said, I will not, I will not be back. <laughs> I will not be right back after this message. So, <laughs> and the next one is that he loved bacon. Oh, and his wife and kids too. So those of us who love bacon, we need to pay some attention to this. And then the next one is a political tombstone. A gay Vietnam veteran. When I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and discharge for a loving one. So he, he, he left a political message on his tombstone. And the lastly, this is a warm tombstone that I don't want anybody to put. His tombstone said, oh no, I don't want anybody to be unprepared for death. You know, as I said many times, for Christian, good death, or what we call euthanasia, is not a painless death. It's a prepared death. When we are prepared to meet God, that is a good death, not a painless death. So hopefully none of us say, oh no. So what would you like to put on your epitaph for tombstone? Perhaps we can share that answer with each other during our breakout room fellowship. If you, me, I have a few, few candidates. One, see you soon. And the second one, are you ready? And then third one is a little more theological. In Christ, colon, more alive than ever. Now, what do you think that Apostle Paul would have written on his tombstone? Paul has many great one-liners, but I think one of the possible epitaphs based on 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 would be glory to die for. Glory to die for. That's our sermon title today. According to Paul, Christians have a glory to die for. And when we know what kind of glory we have, dying is not dreadful, but actually delightful. And also, that dying makes our living more meaningful than ever. In other words, with God's promise of a glory, we can live faithfully and fruitfully like the glorious Apostle Paul. So with that, let us read our text today. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. For we know that if an earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be closed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, and but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is immortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away 
from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Today, we're going to look at the, the last Paul's uh, message about the glory. In the last four messages in our study, 2 Corinthians, we saw Paul talking about glory. So chapter 3, glory to free us. And chapter 4, glory in us. We are a clay, but we, we, are, we are a jar of clay, but God's treasure is a glory in us. And last week, we heard, we, we studied the, the, the greatest sermon of C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. And then today, we will look at the last you know, message on glory. And I wonder, why did Paul use the word glory so much in 2 Corinthians? You know, next to Romans, Paul used the word glory more in this episode than any other episode. And I think the reason for that is the glory, the promise of us God's glory, it gave us such a dynamic strength to Paul in a difficult ministry and difficult you know, relationship and difficult times like a Corinthians. So that's why he's talking, he talked about glory over and over again. Today we, we will, uh, today's passage tells us three crucial reasons why God's promise of a glory is so empowering and energizing us. We're going to look at the passage in terms of a three. Claim, number one is a claim, number two is a cry, and number three is a cause. Claim, cry, and cause. Claim, we, have, we will answer the question, what is a God's glory specifically and concretely for us? And then cry, why is a God's glory is so sweet and satisfying? And finally, the, the cause is a how God's glory is strengthening us here and now. So let's look at the claim. Today's passage starts with verse 1. Paul said, we know, we know. We know that if an earthly tent to be lived in is destroyed, we have a building from God and an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Notice the way that Paul started today's message. We know. Paul was confident about life after death. His view on death was not speculative and abstractive. It was uh, concrete and specific. Paul could live, Paul lived his life fully because he knew life after death for sure. How could Paul be so confident and certain about death and life after uh, death or life after death? For Paul's conviction about life after death came from Christ. He met risen Christ on his way to Damascus. Paul thought, the resurrection of Jesus was a lie, and he was persecuting and killing everyone who proclaimed the risen Christ. Then he met Christ. The fact that Paul came to this certainty about life after death or resurrection was not an abstract theory, but an actual history. That's why Paul devoted a long chapter about resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we call it what we call the chapter of a resurrection. And in the first Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said this, verse 14, that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be a false witnesses about God. For we have testified God has raised Christ from the dead. But God did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have a hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul said, if a resurrection of Christ is not historical fact, it's not true. 
Our faith is futile. He is a liar. And everybody who died for Christ, the martyrs, they wasted their life, I mean, their, their, their life for no good. And himself, all his suffering and trials, is a total self-deceived waste of a life. So Paul, he was very confident about resurrection or life after death. You know, life after death is one of the greatest mysteries that people desperately want to know and constantly imagine. And in many religions and philosophies render different versions of a life after death. And Apostle Paul and Christianity, we have the greatest vision and hope for life after death. He said, we as a children of God have a, will receive a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Here Paul was talking about resurrection of a body or body of a resurrection that God will give to his children at the end of his story. By the way, we need to know one thing very clearly. Heaven, according to New Testament, is an intermediary state or waiting station. Our final destination, according to Revelation, is a new heaven and new earth, namely recreated, perfected earth, where the heavenly presence of God with us will be a permanent reality. So when Christ returns to earth and redeems the whole creation, both the saint who come with him from heaven and the saint who receive him on the earth shall receive a new glorious body of a resurrection. This, this new body is so divine, so perfect, so incredible that Paul added the description is not built by human hands. Paul here compares a God to an architect. Imagine if a great human architect, one of my favorite is a, a Chinese-American, I.M. Pei, who designed and built a masterpiece like a, a Louvre Pyramid and the JFK Presidential Library and so many other buildings. We have a one in Dallas too. But imagine the divine God can, you know, God, how impressively, how perfectly God will build the eternal dwelling place for his beloved children. So Paul is saying here is we, God promised this body of glory for us. Now here, to make a point, Paul compared our current physical body to a tent and the future body to a house. And why did Paul use this analogy of a tent and house? First of all, tent was a very common dwelling place for people back then. And second of all, Paul knew about tent more than most people because he was tent maker. If you look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1, Paul said when he left Athens and came to the Corinth, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was tent maker as they were, they stayed and worked together. While Paul was pastoring a Corinthian church, Paul worked as a tent maker. He made his own living. And this is where we call bivocational pastors. You know, pastors who are not paid by the church? I'm not bivocational. I'm just monovocational. And thank you for paying me. Thank you for paying my salary. But uh, those pastors who are serving small church that with, without much financial resources and make their own living, we call bivocational pastors. And sometimes we use the biblical term tent makers. And... Uh, one of our new members, Yoon Kim, from Palo Alto, California, his uh, email address is yoon at tentmaker.com and ask Yoon why he made you know, his, uh, uh, his email address like that. And you will hear one of the great uh, answers about the Christian vocation. Yoon doesn't just uh, work as an engineer. It's his vocation. But anyway, so Paul was a tent maker 
and apparently Priscilla and Aquila, another Jewish couple, they were also tent makers, and they were his VIPs. And eventually they received Christ, and much more they became faithful companions and co-workers of Paul. And the story of Priscilla and Aquila deserved one full sermon, so they will, I'll share about their, their story later. And also, as a Jewish rabbi, Paul was trained not only with a theological subject, but also practical skills to take himself in case of a needy time. You know, Jewish tradition never despised physical and manual labor because they are descendants of a shepherd or dairy farmers in, in the ancient world. So Jewish view of a life is a very earthy. Now, do you like a tent? How many of you like a tent? How many of you kind of wish you stayed in, you know, you had a, you kind of stayed in tent? I mean, most of us like a tent because it's very romantic. Tent means camping. Don't you love camping? You know, first time I went to real camping was when I was a seminarian in Northern California. I, I went to Yosemite Half Dome hiking with the four UC Berkeley students. And uh, Yosemite was, uh, so one of the students, he, he said that he's been there, he knows the route and, and everything. So he did a camping before. So he was our guide and we went, and uh, that wasn't, you know, he wasn't a good guide. Because he went to Half Dome camping with his family, so his parents took care of everything. So he barely remembered. So when he asked him, what do we prepare? He said, Oh, just to, you know, rent a, a backpack from, uh, what do you say, REI type kind of place. And then, you know, buy whatever food. We're going to stay overnight, so buy the food. So we all went to a place called the Price Club. Some of you remember a place called the Price Club? Anyway, so we bought the big size, you know, snacks and stuff. And then we put it in. And then we tried it on. And the mine, you know, mine was about 60, 70 pounds. And then, you know, it was walking on the, so it was okay. It was, you know, it's, it's, you know, I just tried just a, just a little few minutes and it was very good. And then we start walking and didn't know. I mean, of course, it's a mount we knew, but we didn't know that uh, four miles is uphill. And the initially flat, flat land, 70 pounds in the flat land is okay. You try uphill steps. We're talking about how many number of steps. We thought we'll get there soon, but it took us a twice longer. And during the time, we couldn't sit down when we were tired because we were afraid that we couldn't get up. So we all leaned on the, on the, on the rock to rest. And then it took us painful, like uh, seven hours to get to the uh, base, finally the base camp. And then we settled down, we pitched the tent and guess what? We didn't bring a water. We, he said we just boiled the water. And there was a stream of water, really beautiful, you know, picturesque you know, stream of water. But, you know, boiling water takes a long time, right? So we are boiling water, and then you cannot drink it, the boiling water. You have to wait for it. And by the time we wait and the five young men drink, it's, it's so little. So it took a long time for us to settle. And by the time we told, we finally ate dinner and uh, we're looking up the sky and the nice guy in Yosemite, unforgettable. Unforgettable. It's like a heaven on earth kind of a sky proctor show and we all say, oh, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And then while we are about to sleep, a ranger came and said, do you guys have a camping permit? And uh, our guide, junior in UC Berkeley, I still remember his name, Chris Peck. He said, what permit? <laughs> and the ranger said, without permit, you cannot stay. You have to go down and get the permit. What? So we, we, we plead and uh, we plead. It was a woman ranger. We plead her motherly instinct. We said, if you send us down, you will have a bigger problem because we're so tired. We'll, something will happen to us. And then you have to call everybody. We'll, 
So we played it, played it. All right. You know, guess what? I came back to the Yosemite Half Dome camp. Few years later, with my first church young adult, volunteering, I volunteered myself as a guide. And this time, I told them to pack lightly. You're not going to finish every snack that you brought. So everybody packed lightly. And above all, we brought portable water pump that can shoot drinking water out of stream like a cannon. So we had a great, you know, uh, uh, half done, you know, hiking. Now, would you like to live in camp? You know, would you like to live in tent? That's a different story. We like a tent because it's a romantic and it involves a camping. But as a permanent dwelling place, nobody likes a tent. Look at the homeless people. Look at the refugee camps around the world. They all live in the tent. And Paul is telling us our current physical body is like an earthly tent. And compared to the house, tent decays you know, rapidly and they need a constant repairs. This Friday, I went to uh, my annual physical and my primary care physician told me to do all the overdue inspection and some repairs. I have a serious tear in my fabric called the congenital aneurysm in the heart, cardiac aneurysm. And they said, he said, she said, you haven't seen your cardiologist the last three years. You need to do echogram and the MRI all over again, see whether it grew or not. So that's our body. Our body is a decay. And Paul is saying, don't worry. God prepared the glorious body for all of us. You know, this is why this passage is the most use a passage for the burial service for our loved one. I use this passage for my father's burial sermon and many uh, and, uh, and others. And uh, one day we will have this glorious body. Now, before I go to the next, uh, you know, this, by the way, I, one important thing is the resurrection of the body that Paul taught us was so contrary, direct opposite of a Greek view of a body and death. So if you look at the Acts chapter 17, verse 32, when Paul preached the resurrection of the body along with the gospel at Athens, the Greek philosophers when they heard the resurrection of the body, they, they, they sneered at him. They mocked Paul. So now, the second, so second topic we're going is that, what's the big deal about the resurrection of the body? Why is that so, you know, why, why, what, what is so sweet about that Paul said he cried out? I want to tell you the resurrection of the body is the greatest news of all. We have a good news in Christ. The greatest part of the good news of Christ, one day you and I will have resurrection of the body or a resurrected body or spiritual body that Jesus had. So that's the second part cry. You know, verse 2, Paul said, Meanwhile we groan. Paul used this language of groaning. Verse 4 again. For while we are in this tent, we groan a burden. Paul said the, he is a groan to receive, receive that a new body. You know, when he can wait to die, to receive that body. Here, this is not the first time that Paul used a language of groaning here. Actually, Paul used it earlier in Romans chapter 8 about the groaning. So let's look at the Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Do we have the passage? Okay. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. 
we know the whole creation has been groaning as a pains of a childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for a not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adop adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In this, and then later, verse 26, Paul said, In the same way, Spirit, help us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groan. So Paul here mentions Three kinds of a groaning. The first groaning is a whole creation. Whole creation groans. Because ever since the human beings disobeyed and fell away from God, the creation was accursed and in trouble. So even creation, they're longing for liberation from this decay and corruption. And that there, Liberation comes when the children of God, when we are glorified. So that's what he's saying, that uh, they're all waiting for adoption, full adoption of a sonship. And then quote, the redemption of a body, verse 23. And uh, that's what the Holy Spirit is also working in us. So second groaning is that a Holy Spirit is a groaning us. What is a Holy Spirit is a groaning us? If you remember Genesis 1.26, God made us His image. That means His glory. From the beginning, we are made in God's glory. That's why Paul said Romans 3.23, we all have sinned and fell short of the glory. When we sinned, we lost God's glory. It means when we sinned, and we lost glory, we began to seek wrong glory. Instead of seeking real glory, the glory of God, we are seeking our own glory, which is basically a gratification of our selfish desires. So Holy Spirit, you know, after we receive Christ, it comes in us, try to recreate that image of God and to restore that image of God to full maturation. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. Now, and then along with that, we also groan. But here, look at the verse 23. Paul said, that is, you know, he, he, he explained the adoption, our salvation is adoption. And then he said the, that the, the climax of our adoption or salvation is the redemption of our body. All right. I hope you take a good note on this. Today, I want to share with you a very important clarification and definition of a so-called order of a Christian salvation. Those of you a little bit familiar in the church, you know the, you, you, you know the terms or concept or doctrines like a justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? Okay, I assume they right. I miss the in person. I could, you know, I could, I could make eye contact and people say amen. But, but yeah, give give me a hand signal. That will do. Just you know, justification, sanctification, glorification. This is so called the order of a salvation. And uh, there is an old Princeton uh, theological seminary, Princeton seminary, a uh, 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 theologian named Benjamin Warfield, who gave a great definition, which became a foundation of evangelical theology or evangelical doctrine of a salvation. So I hope you remember this. You don't have to go to Princeton or seminary to know this. He said justification means God saving us from penalty of sin, which is eternal death. Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin. That is a justification. And then he says sanctification is that God is saving us power of a sin. Even though Jesus paid penalty of sin and justified us, the sin is still us and much more is against our spirit. Sin is a powerful, powerful enemy in our life. Sinful habit, 
sinful desire is really raising spiritual war against us. So he says sanctification is the salvation from power of the sin, not just the penalty of sin, but the power of the sin. And then finally, he said glorification. What is a glorification? At the end, in presence of God, when we see Jesus, when we see Jesus face to face, we will fall in love with him. We will find that Jesus is... We don't want to do nothing but just love him and obey him and follow him. He said, sin is the last thought in our mind. He said, God will save us from presence of a sin. Presence of sin. That is a glorification. Now, that's a Benjamin Warfield, a great definition. I'm not as great as a Benjamin Warfield, but let me give you another different way to describe. Justification is salvation of our spirit, or technical term is a regeneration of a spirit. Bible says we are dead in sin. Our spirit is dead. Our spirit doesn't seek God anymore. Our spirit is a is a in, inoperative, like a dead person. And then when we receive Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, our spirit revives or regenerated and opens itself to God or turns toward God. However you interpret the regeneration, justification means salvation of the spirit. What about the sanctification? That is a salvation of our soul. That's we're talking about renewal of our mind. Even though our spirits are now alive through Christ, our mind is still cluttered with all kinds of worldly values and then worldly thought, carnal thought. And sanctification, what the Holy Spirit you know, does for us, is to renew our mind by cleansing our soul with the Word of God. And then finally, what is a glorification? Glorification is a salvation of our body. What does it mean? Our body no longer instrument of a sin and unrighteousness and sinfulness, the selfishness. But our body will no longer oppose us, our desire to serve God. Our body will be completely sync with our spirit to praise God and serve God and follow God. That is a glorification. That is a glorified body that God will give us. That's the redemption of the body that a whole creation is looking for. And our spirit is groaning, and the Holy Spirit is also groaning. That's where we're going. You know, let me illustrate this. Last week, one great passage that I skipped in the C.S. Lewis' The Weight of Glory is this. I skipped for today. I just didn't talk to it. So let, let, me, let me read a one more. One more passage from the uh, 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 Weight of Glory. The C.S. Lewis, a great uh, passage. Sermon. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. Uh, we discern the freshness and the purity of a morning, but, we do not, uh, but, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendor we see. But all leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumors that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. When human souls have become as a perfect involuntary obedience as an innate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we will prone its glory. Or rather, the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Let me explain. You know, when you look at the nature, you know, sun and moon and everything works perfectly according to the law of nature. And Paul said, they are, it's not just that they are obeying the law. They are not moving just according to the law. That's what God made them to be, and they do that faithfully. So innate object, nature obeys God. We are bigger than universe. Do you remember Kierkegaard's, you know, saying that we are uh, weak like a reed, but we are thinking weed, so we are bigger than the universe? 
We are the greatest of God's creation, yet we are the most disobedient, unfaithful to God. But one day, when our body is redeemed, just like the sun and moon, we will obey God. We will reflect God's glory. And here, in this passage, you know, C.S. Lewis says something very important. We see the nature, we love it, but it doesn't make us obedient like God. Let me read another passage from uh, related to passage. So let's move on. The next passage on this, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, you know. We are to shine as a sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I began to see what it means. In one way, of course, God hasn't given us a morning star already. You can go and enjoy gift of them on many fine mornings if you get up early. One more you ask, do you want? Ah, but you want so much more. Something the books on aesthetic take a little notice of. But the poets and mythologists know all about it. We do not want to merely see beauty. Though God knows even that's about enough, we want something else which can hardly be thrown into the world. Be united with the beauty we see to pass into it and receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it and become part of it. Keep this passage here and look at the last sentence. What Sesulu is saying is this. You know, when we see the beautiful nature, we don't just say, wow, this is a great, I'm so, it's awesome. Beside that administration, there is a yearning in our heart that we want to not only appreciate the beauty, but we want to belong to beauty. We want to be united with that beauty. That's what C.S. is talking about. When we see the glorious morning, we say, what a beautiful morning, but we also wish. I wish I can be glorious and shining and splendor like this morning. That is in deep in our spirit and our soul. We don't merely see a beauty. Isn't that true? When you go to, you know, this, whatever, incredible nature, you know, nature sin, don't, you know, does you know it satisfy you momentarily? But don't you want to? Don't 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 you have a bigger, deeper yearning? Don't you want to say, "Can I be beautiful? Can I be glorious like this?" We want to be part of the beauty. We want to be part of the lasting beauty. We want the beauty to be in us. We don't want to just believe in God and we want to be good. We want to be more than true and good. We want to be beautiful. We want to be attractive. We want to be glorious. Let me explain this. Let me give you a very crude you know, analogy. Let me show you this picture. Do you have this a picture of a beautiful nature? Can you put it up? Anybody knows this? This is a famous Yosemite Valley. And then far right, you see the half dome. That's the dome that I, you know, I went, you know, I hiked twice. Of course, you don't go the cliff side, you go to the, the round side. It's eight miles each way. And uh, when you go up there, you will see this. Next thing, you will see Yosemite Valley. Actually, I was, I was there. I was, uh, you know, I have a, I, I could, I tried to find the picture yesterday, but I, you know, I didn't have, you know, I couldn't find my old album, but I took a picture right that same spot the guy was standing. You know, my family knows I have an acrophobia. I have a fear of a height. So when I drove the first time that uh, George, Bush, George Bush, you know, uh, uh, turnpike to the I-35, you know, that uh, south, there's a tall, you know, uh, 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 connection, right? Even now, when I go up there, my palms sweat. I have a sweats in my palms. I have acute, incurable acrophobia. But when I went up there, believe me, I want to try the hang gliding. Because when you see the breathtaking Yosemite Valley, you just want to fly into it. 
if there is a safe way to fly into it, I'll try. And I saw a couple people, a couple of hand gliders. You know, I don't know whether they are permitted these days, but the, back then there was a couple guys who was assembling hand gliding thing to jump out. Why do, they do, why do they risk their life like that? Because God created us to be part of the beauty. We want to unite it with the beauty. We want to be part of the glory. Amen? That's the glorification. And the good news is that one day, when G, when, at the end of his story, Jesus will give us the resurrected body that will obey God more than anything in this world. We will love to, we, we will have a one desire. That desire is obey God and love like Jesus. Use every part of our body as an instrument of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I long for the day. Now, let me move on to the final conclusion of our message today. So, what do we do? Then do we just wait until it comes, or do we die? You know, don't you want to go to heaven? Actually, look at the what Paul said, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident, and verse 6, know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are always from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, but would prefer to be away from the body at home with the Lord. So we make it in our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due, uh, due us for the things done while in the body. This is a packed passage. Here, Paul is using the uh, uh, wordplay that uh, keep the passage. You know, Paul is using the uh, the the passage that in body and out of body. I mean, he said uh, in home and out of home, right? Being at home or being away. In Greek texts, Paul was making a pun with a word. Uh, being at home, at home or in home. In Greek is endemos, endemos. You know, uh, people were saying that uh, this pandemic, COVID-19 virus, will be endemic. You know what that means? It will be with us. It will be a regular future of our life. It will be in our life permanently for a long time, just like a flu or just like any other virus. So this COVID-19 will not go away right after vaccine, we will probably get a, you know, this is a game changer. Rest of our life, we might use a mask. Very, you know, many, many cold times. So that's the word, the endemic came from endemos. Away is ectemos, out of. The word demos in Greek means people, democracy. You know, de you know that's a rule by people, rule, rule by the citizens. That's the demos, same word. Demographic, you know, study of the, uh, that whatever, you know, that uh, of, of a population. Here, at home, in Greek language, it means you are home with the people. Demos is not just any people. It's the same people from same town or police. We're talking about people like-minded. Isn't that true? You are at home. Not because, you know, you are in low, you know, that particular house is uh, make you home, but people you love, they make you home. Wherever you find the loving people, that's your home. Whenever you are out of the loving people, you are not at home. So now Paul is saying this. I'd rather be at home with Jesus. He has a dilemma. But I'm here. Philippian Paul said, I wish I'll be with Jesus. But for your sake, I'm here. This is a constant Paul struggle. He can't wait to go to God. But he said, he has a work to do. Now, here is a very, very important you know, challenge for all of us. 
We just learned that heaven is our final you know, destination. And the resurrection of the body is a final blessing that God will bestow upon us. Right? So what does the promise of a glorified body and the heaven mean to us here on earth now, in the meantime? I want us to know this very clearly. Heaven is not just a future, our final destination, but our present motivation. Present motivation. The fact that we're going to heaven and new earth eventually, and that's where we're spending eternity, must motivate us how we live here. The heaven doesn't motivate us to be faithful here on earth. That is not a Christian understanding of a heaven. The most spiritual people that I know, they are the most practical people. If you have a right understanding of eternity, you will have a rigorous attitude toward this temporal life. We will be most practical because we have a most profound view of the future. Someone said, we will be of a more earthly good if we are heavenly minded. If we are truly heavenly minded, if we really understand heaven, if we really know what heaven is at stake, we will be more earthly good. On the other hand, if we make earth our heaven, it may turn into the prelude to hell. Don't make earth a heaven. Do you, you know, I find it problematic that so many Christians who are caught up with the earthly reality that they are exhausting all their energies with the earthly things. And they think about heaven as an afterthought. They think a heaven is like a mirage at the end of the horizon or just as an insurance, I want to tell you, heaven is more than insurance. Heaven is an incentive for us. Not just any incentive, but an indispensable, indisputable incentive. That's why Paul said in verse 10 that a judgment seat of Christ is waiting for us. Paul used this serious language of a judgment. We are all going to be stand before God's judgment. Do you know? When we die, we will be judged by God. And I said many times that judgment of Christ is not a scary thing for faithful people. I live each day for the judgment of God. Some of you wonder, oh, don't we go to heaven by our own, I mean, not by our, our own good works, but by grace of Jesus? You're right. We are saved by God's grace, not by our good works. But you also should know we are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works. Well, we are saved for good works by grace of God. Because good works. That's what God initially created for us. By good works, we mean loving others and loving God. And here, the God's reward in heaven is not like it's not a punishment. It's like a God promised have glorious body, the resurrection body, spiritual body to all his children. So we all receive the final reward of our salvation in, in our body. Now then, what is this judgment? According to Revelation, there is a white throne judgment where God will bless, reward us according to our faithfulness. Once again, that is not God is discriminating us. That you are gold, you are silver, you are bronze, or you just barely made it. We are not talking about this kind of you know, reward. God's reward is not external. It's an internal those of us who serve God those on earth faithfully, God will grant us. God will empower our capacity to serve Him more in heaven. 
It's an internal rewarding, not an external rewarding. I gave an, an analogy in daily breath, so let me, it's like a, you're learning language. You know, some of my kids, they learn Spanish. Why? I hope they don't learn Spanish just to pass the class. I hope they learn Spanish well so that when we go to mission trip, when we, I'm from, you know, uh, Latino America, so when we travel there, they can converse and they interact and they will really enjoy the deepening, you know, I mean, they pray that the beautiful, you know, uh, uh, Latin American culture. That's why they are learning Spanish. Heavenly reward is like that. God is rewarding us so that we will have more joy of exercising our faith and service to God. Do you know serving others is the greatest joy? You know, people who like to be served, boy, you don't know the joy of serving other people. I know eating at a great, you know, expensive restaurant is a great joy. But you know what? If you have, have you cooked some delicious food and people enjoy so much, man, that joy, I have to, you know, I'll take the joy anytime above any fancy restaurant. Especially when you satisfy and serve the people you love. Nothing is more gratifying than serving and blessing and helping the people you love enjoy and happy. What is a love? Love is making the other person happy. When you make other people happy, you become happy. Man alive, that's the, that's the marriage. That's the real love, guys. Oh. I over, my, my, my youngest daughter came over and said, time over, time over. So we're going to quit here. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, we have a glory to die for. Literally, glory to die for every day. The glory that God prepared for us is so awesome that Paul wanted to die. But, he, but just for the sake of people who didn't know, he couldn't go. And he gave it all. That's the same thing that we do here. Let us serve God with a confidence and certainty that God prepared the perfect life for us, starting here with a whole, through Jesus Christ's Son, saving our spirit, and then sanctifying our souls through the Holy Spirit. At the end, we will celebrate heavenly banquet with Jesus Christ, our Lord, risen Christ. Let's pray.